Hey guys, let's uh, prepare our hearts for our time in the Word of God this morning. So bow your heads with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for, for your Word and how it speaks to us so clearly and so majestically, so powerfully about the Gospel, that it is truth for our ears and it is a delight to our hearts. Pray, Lord, for wisdom this morning, that we may understand and grasp uh, the truth that goes out, that above all, Christ would be proclaimed and honored and loved above all else, and that we would be faithful stewards of that message by which we see your kingdom advance. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We commit our time in the word to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 2. Text for this morning is uh, a part of a whole beginning in verse 21. So please follow along, along as I read. First Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we continue on our study in the context of salvation. Remember, the whole of 1 Peter is learning about what it means to stand in the true grace of God. He reminds us in the closing verses of this book, this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. Stand firm in it, unwavering with full conviction. And so all that goes before that engages our hearts and minds so that we may fulfill that task. And so we've gotten through part one, which was salvation, the foundation of true grace. What are we standing on? And then we come to this second part, when we talk about honoring authority all the way up at verse 13 of chapter 2, we call it the footing of true grace. That is, we have something to stand on, now the question becomes, well, how do we stand? In light of what do we stand? What is our manner? What is our footing? And that is answered by this word, submission. And as Peter goes through this, whether it he is pointing to submitting ourselves to certain governmental institutions or slaves being submissive to their masters, he is careful to draw our attention back to why we do all this, in what context we do all this. And that begins at verse 21. We are reminded in a passage like this that we are ultimately submissive to Christ. And not only that, that we are submissive in light of who he is and what he has done. And while this uh, passage is by no means exhaustive concerning all that Christ has done for us and is to us, it is sufficient to the task of enduring suffering, because that's the context. If we are suffering unjustly, what do we call to mind regarding Jesus Christ? And we find that this text addresses four things. Last Lord's Day, we went through two of them. The first is this, that in the midst of unjust suffering, 
remember that there is a calling in his sacrifice. Just because you suffer in whatever era, and no matter how difficult or severe the suffering is, or prolonged that the suffering is, we still have a calling. Suffering does in no way undermine our calling from Christ. And we find that we are called on the basis of his sacrifice. So verse 21, you remember, we have been called for this purpose. So suffering, even unjustly, does not undermine our purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. So we find that calling. Secondly, we find that in the midst of unjust suffering, we also have a conviction in his standard. Where, are our, where do our convictions lie? Well, they lie in the example of Christ. How, what is the manner of suffering when it comes? We find that in verse 22, Christ is described via the Old Testament as the one who committed no sin. Now that is a high calling in and of itself. Just because we are suffering, our standard of behavior is by no means minimized. Our standard is still perfection. And yes, I realize it is very difficult. In fact, even in this life, this side of eternity, it is impossible to live perfectly, but we live in light of Christ's perfect example. In fact, we are able to live a, a life in God's presence on the very basis of Christ's perfect example, and then some. So Jesus is our standard in that regard, and we remember that. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, verse 23, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So today we come to number three. What is the third thing we remember while suffering unjustly? And I would say that this is, is probably the most important thing to keep in mind. It is definitely connected to the sacrifice that is mentioned in verse 21. In fact, you could say this is an expansion of that. So we'll call it this, is that in the midst of suffering, unjust suffering, we have confidence in Christ's salvation. We have confidence in his salvation. I mean, I think if I could preach one passage for the rest of my life, it might be this one. Because this is, as we said last week, the central truth of the Christian life. All of Christianity is founded on this truth. At night, I have been enjoying, during bedtime, reading to my son, The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. I think sometimes I enjoy it more than he does. Um, but it's been a fun little adventure for us, going chapter by chapter. And in this book, if you're not familiar with it, we are introduced to the character of Bilbo Baggins, a ho the, the aforementioned hobbit, who accompanies a group of dwarves on an adventure to a place called the Lonely Mountain, where the dwarves seek to regain their treasure and restore the kingdom of Erebor to its former glory. And wouldn't you know it, Within that mountain, on top of an enormous pile of gold, is a dragon. I mean, that figures, right? You want the treasure, you got to go face the dragon first. Huge dragon lying on top of the gold. And, but much of the story centers around finding the greatest treasure of all. It is the treasure that the dwarves call the Arkenstone. This is the treasure that uh, the main dwarf, Thorin, who is heir to the throne of Erebor, desires above all. There is untold amounts of gold in this mountain, but that is the treasure that he seeks. That is the treasure that has his heart captive. It is, the Arkenstone is described thusly. 
But the fairest of all, that is the treasure, was the white gem, which the dwarves had found beneath the roots of the mountain, the heart of the mountain, the Arkenstone of Thrain. As Thorin describes it, it was a globe with a thousand facets. It shone like silver in the firelight, like water in the sun, like snow under the stars, like rain upon the moon. I mean, the way he describes it, it makes the hoard of gold sound rather plain. But this is the jewel he's after. In fact, it is described as worth more than a river of gold in itself. Can you imagine today how valuable a river of gold is? If you had a river of gold to your name, you could buy out our government and they would do whatever they told you. Riches beyond description, beyond compare, and yet this jewel, the Arkenstone, the heart of the mountain was the treasure to be desired above everything else. It said that it was a self-illuminating jewel. It gave off a light of its own. And I think this jewel is, is a great illustration of what is described in this text. That is, the heart of the gospel. This is the text that describes it. When you read this verse, let's start in verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. If you want to find the heart of scripture, the Arkenstone truth as it were, this is what is being described here. This is the truth. The truth that is the foundation and the center of all other truths that we teach. We want to orient our hearts toward the text this morning in light of this. If you think about a text we have often gone to in relation to 1 Peter, especially our study of chapter 2, we've gone frequently back to Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar's dream describes, remember, the, the, the four kingdoms. And then there is a fifth one in which we find a stone cut out without hands. And remember, this stone subdues and crushes all other kingdoms. And then it becomes a mountain to fill the entire world. And I would say that that is happening as we speak. So what is the heart of that mountain then? If the kingdom of God is a mountain, what is the truth that lies at the heart of the advancement of that kingdom? And so you open scripture and it is a river of gold. It is a treasure trove of truth that reveals God in all of his wisdom and beauty and majesty. It demonstrates that God wants to be known by man and to a greater end that he wants to dwell among us. And we seek his word and listen to it and obey it. We keep his commandments as he dwells with us. And as we dig through the scriptures and study it and the, and the Lord opens our hearts and minds, we find that the central message of scripture is the good news mentioned here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then you dig even further and you ask yourself, well, what is the heart of the gospel? If the heart of the mountain of the kingdom of God is the gospel, then what is the heart of the gospel itself? What is that radiant, self-illuminating source that gives light and life and substance to the entire message that we believe? It is this, and it's what Peter is teaching here. It is that Christ died in our place. We call this the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That Christ not only died, but that he died for his people. 
paying the penalty for our sin. That is the heart of the gospel, which teaches that Jesus Christ, at a moment in history, died in our place for our sins as our personal substitute. Substitutionary atonement is described by Spurgeon thusly, There is no doctrine that fires my soul with such delight as that of substitution. Substitution, listen to this, this is great, is the very marrow of the whole Bible. It is the soul of salvation. It is the essence of the gospel. We ought to saturate all our sermons with it, for it is the lifeblood of a gospel ministry. All in agreement to that? (laughs) We could say, that's end quote, but we could say that if all the kingdom of God were a mountain, then Christ crucified for sinners is the heart of of the mountain. Friends, every truth we cherish, every doctrine we preach, every promise we believe hinges on this truth. And yet we don't want to see this as a solitary truth, but one that is intimately connected to everything else we believe and teach. It's the center, it's the foundation, it's how the kingdom of God advances. But there is no kingdom. There is no crown without a cross. There is no victory without a sacrifice. There is no heaven without humiliation. I would even say that what makes Christianity unique, and many have said this before, what makes Christianity unique from every other world religion is that it is the only religion that has as its core teaching the humiliation of its God. And yet this humiliation is what grants us an eternal and heavenly inheritance. It is this very humiliation that removes sin from us as far as the east is from the west and grants us entrance into the kingdom of God and of his Christ. It is a truth most precious. It is a truth that every other truth hinges on. So we can rejoice today that Jesus is truly our salvation. So let's unpack this a little bit. Beautiful text, beautiful truth. If you miss this text, you're, you're probably going to miss the rest of Scripture. This is, this is everything, right? This is, this is the heart of it. So listen to verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. Look at these first three words. They're very important. And he himself. So what Peter is doing here is beginning to use uh, Christ in in, in an emphatic sort of language to direct attention to him. He is the one who is our sacrifice and standard in suffering, but he also saves us. He himself carries with it the important understanding that not only he himself, but he by himself. This is to separate the work of Christ and to acknowledge and and shine the spotlight on its uniqueness. That when Christ bore our sins, he did it by himself. That he accomplished what could not have been accomplished by any other. If man ever had any notion of being saved from that which threatens his eternal soul, this is to say he himself that man only has one option. You could look the world and history over and you would only find one substitute that is worthy to die in his place. This is our option. It's the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at 1 John 2, 2, it expresses the same thing. The grammar is similar. It's emphatic. It doesn't just say, and he is the propitiation for our sins. No, it says, and he himself. The text is careful to isolate what 
only Jesus can do. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This text also tells very clearly that Jesus accomplishes our salvation with no other. That within the entire scope of human redemption, Jesus never needed another man to assist him in salvation. That means you. That means me. That Jesus does not require our help. He does not require our input. He does not require our wisdom. He does it by himself and he does it, he does it by no other and he does it with no other. So Jesus Christ is perfectly obedient to carrying out his mission given to him by the Father. He wholly secures our salvation without help without assistance. And in a time, speaking of historical context, when enduring suffering from the hands of an unbeliever can be a prolonged event, and we see that mounting even now in our own time, we continue to think of Christ, our sacrifice, our standard, our example in suffering, but also our Savior, to call to mind what He did when He laid down his life for us. So what did he do? That's the next question. Scripture has the answer. He himself, so he does it with no other and by no other, but what does he do? The text says, verse 24, he bore our sins. So in First Peter fashion, he often grabs uh, texts from the Old Testament and applies them. So he does the same thing here. This is drawn from the book of Isaiah, first in verse 6 where it says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verse 11, Isaiah 53, it says, he will bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, as if you didn't get the point already, he himself bore the sins of many. And it's really interesting here to to think about what Christ has done for us, because when you talk about bearing sin, this is to bear a heavy load. And if you've ever carried anything heavy, you notice it kind of messes with your posture. It bends you down. It, you get back issues. You, you, it's a painful thing to bear a heavy load. In fact, James uses the same word here when he describes Abraham laying Isaac on the altar. It was a heavy load. To bear sin was a heavy burden. And there's an interesting word play in here because when you think of bearing one's sins, one's that, one that brings you down, one that bends the back, The word that Isaiah actually uses for iniquity comes from the Hebrew word avon, which means to be bent over. So Christ, in bearing our sins, is bent over so that he may bring redemption to those who are bent over. That is crooked, avon, bent over by by their own sin, raising us to life so that we could walk upright without crookedness. Also in here is very clearly is a connection to the law. In Leviticus 4.4, this is, this is all about atonement, something dying in your place. In Leviticus 4.4, when the sin offering is offered, there is a bull presented, and the man would place his hand on the bull's head, thus symbolically transferring his guilt. So you knew you were guilty, and by faith, you were transferring your guilt to that offering, and then what happens to the bull? It's killed. Its blood is shed on the altar, and it is offered. So there is that reminder that Israel had again and again, day after day, year after year, that sin kills. But it's also a reminder, a very important reminder, that man was incapable of bearing his own sin. 
that in the end game of redemption, the penalty of sin not only could be passed on to someone else, it had to be passed on someone else. We are ill fit to bear our own sin. And so what God was communicating to Israel was to prepare them to, by faith, look forward to Jesus Christ, who would be their ultimate and final sin bearer. I mean, this even goes back further. It was pointed out to me that we probably uh, mentioned between Jeremy and I in our teaching Genesis chapter 3 more than any other book in the Bible. So we're going to, or chapter in the Bible. So we're going to do it again today. This idea of atonement goes even back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did the Lord do? These, these, these leaves will never do. So he clothes them with skin, which of course communicates to us that God had to go and kill an animal. Blood had to be shed so that he could cover the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve. And so that same concept continues on into the, 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 the old covenant that sin must always be atoned for. There must always be a sacrifice. The shedding of blood must always happen. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. But we're also reminded in Hebrews 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Israel had to look forward. There had to be something else. Otherwise, their consciences could never be cleansed. It says in Hebrews 10 as well, go, go a couple ba- uh, verses back. Otherwise, they would have not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Even they had something they needed to look forward to. We're told that the law was only a shadow of things to come, of those good things to come. And yet, we are met here with the substance that Christ brings. That if it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, where does our hope lie? It relies in one righteous man and one Death in our place. I think even Peter understood this. He would understand this firsthand, living under the old covenant, living in Israel, that these repeated offerings offered in Jerusalem could not ultimately cleanse his heart from sin. Even when he sees the Lord, Luke 5, 8, what does he tell him? He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He had an awareness of that, an awareness of that burden. He knew that he could not take away that burden. It was a heavy weight. And It's very clear from Scripture that sin is a weight that man has never been able to lift. And so many of us in here keep trying, don't we? Keep trying to bear this sin on our own. We do many other things with sin too. We play with sin. We flirt with sin. We hide our sin. We try to deny our sin. Sometimes we even love our sin, especially as unbelievers. We loved our sin apart from Christ. We at one point ignored our sin. We justified our sin. But the one thing that man cannot do is bear his sin. He cannot live with his sin. Sin must be judged. Sin must be called out and dealt with. Sin must be punished. And this is why this is such good news, as Peter says, hey, though your sins be many, right? You have a substitute. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. The cross. So we no longer have to be crushed by its weight. I mean, if you were an Old Testament believer, especially, you believe the Scriptures, man, you look forward to that. We look back at that reality and we live in light of that historical reality. But if you were a Jew living in the Old Testament, wow, you were just, if you believe the Scriptures, you wanted so badly for this to happen. You looked forward to it. It was the ultimate promise of God to send someone who was worthy, who was righteous, who was spotless and undefiled to die in your place. It's a one-time act. 
Christ bearing our sins, not a repeated one. Once for all, when he died, it accomplished everything that God designed in order to bring his people to him. And it says this, look at the text again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, without going down the rabbit trail of all the heresies that um, deal with the physical or nature or humanity of Christ, we stick with this truth. He bore them in his body, that the Son of God, Jesus, died an actual physical death. He was Son of God, but he was also flesh and blood. The pain that he was going was not some kind of pretend charade. He was really suffering, and he suffered and died. Now, Paul says of Jesus, of God, that he sent his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That comes from Romans chapter 8. Of course, the word here is, the important word here is likeness, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And Paul uses likeness because he wants to be careful to say that Christ was sinless. So even though he had the appearance of you know, being a man in sinful flesh, and he was a man indeed, he was not sinful. Jesus Christ was sinless and hence a perfect, able sacrifice. And so the question also follows that. This is where our, we, we kind of line our doctrinal ducks in a row. If Christ was sinless, then how could God condemn sin in his flesh according to Romans chapter 8? Okay. Well, what do the scriptures say? We go to another great passage on the atonement. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, mark this. It says, He made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how did he judge sin in Christ's flesh? Well, he took our sin and placed it upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes what is often known as the great exchange. See, that God treated his son the way that we deserve, so we could be treated the way that Christ deserved to be treated. He knew no sin, and yet he became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened, and that's the truth. That is the heart of the gospel, this great exchange, this substitutionary atonement that once for all, when we are brought to life and we place our faith in Christ, we find ourselves redeemed. We find this redemptive mission accomplished. All because Christ, as a willing sacrifice, laid his life down and bore our sins on the cross. Another few verses just to describe this. And again, this comes from Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6, where it says, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, important for the next verse, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, that is, all his people, to fall on him. He did not deserve this, but he willfully became our substitute. In Romans 4.25, we read of Jesus that he was delivered over because of our transgressions, because of our sin. In Galatians 1 verse 4, we read that he, Jesus, gave himself for our sins. So you see this, this massive truth 
of Jesus dying in our place. That is what holds everything together. We will go on to read in 1 Peter 3.18 of Jesus suffering once for sins, the just for the unjust, or the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. When Paul describes this heart of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, he says, by this gospel you are saved. And it says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You notice how he begins with that, and then he goes on to describe uh, Christ subduing his enemies and then handing over the kingdom to the Father. But it begins here. It begins with the heart of the kingdom, the heart of the mountain, the heart of the gospel. And there's another truth we don't want to miss here. Not only did Christ die for our sins, but he became our curse bearer. If you were, if you were a part of Emmaus Road when we went through Galatians, we talked pretty in depth about that, this, this important truth that sin came with a curse, that condemnation hung over us, a very ominous, awaiting death for us all. But Christ, it is said, bore our sins, took the burden, the weight of our sins in his own body on the cross. So he died an actual death on the cross. And apparently translations say that the best way to understand this is either tree or simply wood right? in his own body. We get this from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Go ahead and mark it down. These Old Testament uh, passages are very important in understanding this. Deuteronomy chapter 21, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. And I would even say during the ministry of Jesus, the, the land was defiled. <laughs> you, had a, you had a nation who had rejected God, who was just stuck in the traditionalism, in the legalism of Judaism, although that's not all there is to say about the Judaism of that time, they were not, the main, the main thing to acknowledge here is that the, the Judaism of that time, the Israel of that time during the ministry of Jesus was not pursuing a righteousness by faith. And what an indictment. And a person, any person who tries to pursue righteousness apart from faith in Christ is accursed. They are cursed. And so this is what Jesus did according to Galatians 3. That he became a curse for us. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And the fact is, is that Christ was taken down from the cross before the day was done and he was buried. So all those things were fulfilled in his death. And yet he did not die without becoming a curse for us. Without bearing the weight of that awful curse that ends in eternal judgment and condemnation from God. So, he was hanged on a tree because he was cursed, not cursed because he was hanged on a tree. And yet we find in light of this, there is a, there is a great realization for us that Jesus, having died a real death for us, because in order for man, a sinner, to be redeemed, a man has to die in his place. And this this dilemma is solved by the fact that Jesus, a perfect, righteous man, though unworthy of death, died in our place so that we are now worthy of life in him. Look at this, uh, verse 24 again. So that, so here's the purpose of substitutionary atonement. 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. So look at this first thing. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we find that when Christ dies, it has a definitive effect on his elect. We, we talked about last week that because Jesus actually died for you, his chosen, that it guaranteed that so, at some point you would be regenerated, you would hear the gospel, you would be brought to life in him, and that you would come to faith in Christ. There is no sense in which the atonement, there is no sense in which the cross of Christ is wasted. If Christ died for you, your sins have been paid for. It's double jeopardy otherwise. If Christ suffered for you, then it guarantees that you will not suffer for them. His death was actual. His death accomplished all that it was meant to accomplish by Christ bearing your sin and bearing your curse. But it comes with it a definitively observable effect. You, having died with Christ, die to sin. That's the result. You were once dead in sin. That much is clear. Now you are dead to sin. So Peter here does not use the normal word for dead because the idea here is not to describe the absence of life, right? Like as if we're unresponsive, we're, we're not unresponsive to stimulus or we're separated from God. No, what's meant to, what is meant to be communicated here is the severance of a relationship, that we are dead to sin in the sense that we, that we have cut ties to it, that not only does death not have any power over us, but that death does not have, it, have us in its grasp. We have nothing to do with it. We have disowned it. We have put it aside. It is dead to us and we are dead to it. This is what it means to die to sin and that it cannot hold anymore the prominent position that it once did in our lives. So wherever sin tries to reclaim its reign, we find that it cannot. We are not to be a part of it. Death has no power. We are to rather live unto righteousness. Notice the important difference here. You cannot be alive to sin and live under righteousness, but you cannot live under righteousness until you have died to sin. This is the problem So we see so much in the church with, with compromise, right? It's like we still want to flirt with sin, but no, we are called to live under righteousness. If you flirt with sin, if you act like you are alive to it, you are contradicting, you are undermining the very work of the substitutionary atonement that Christ accomplished. That should strike you as something dangerous. It's one of the reasons we practice church discipline, in fact. We are, we, we are, we are telling one another, accountable to one another, that we cannot trample underfoot the precious blood of Christ, but it has no place in his body, has no place in his church. So on one hand, we are called to die to sin, and on the flip side, we are to live unto righteousness. What an effect this has. What a guarantee this is of substitutionary atonement. We trade, in effect, one lifestyle for another. It doesn't just affect our status, you know, going from living from dead to living, it affects our lifestyle, our very conduct, our very pattern of behavior. So this is the Christian's new commitment to righteous living that is consistent with our standing in Christ. If you have been justified, if you have been declared righteous, you will live righteously. 
God is not going to declare you righteous and then send you off to live unrighteously. That would be a contradiction. So if if God himself has declared you righteous, you can bet your soul that he has given you every provision to live consistently with that declaration. So those are all the, that is the outflow of Christ dying for sinners. Gives us power over indwelling sin. Gives us power, provision for final victory over the flesh. To resist temptation. To walk consistently with the Word of God. To live consistent with His character. I mean, think about live to righteousness. The Bible is anything but vague when it comes to what righteousness is. It's a descriptive term of God's behavior, of God's character and God's standard. And yes, His conduct, His behavior, the things that God does. Everything he is and does is righteous. In fact, we have no standard for what is right if we deviate from God in any way. But now, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as based on Christ dying in our sin, we are raised to walk in newness of life, to live righteously. I mean, what a gift to be able to follow Christ's example, to do what is right, and to actually want to do it. That is our inclination. That is what it is to have the new nature. But even the gift of the new nature is ultimately founded in the fact that Christ died for us. So listen to this. Romans 6 is very illuminating for us in relationship to the Christian and sin and the Christian and righteousness. In verse 2, Paul, Paul responds to the question, shall we still sin so that grace may abound? May it never be, he said, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? In verse 4 of Romans 6, he says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so in light of that, what is it to walk in newness of life? Well, verse 13 of Romans 6 says this, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. See, that is, that is dying to sin fully fleshed out, right? as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This was a hopeless thing apart from Christ. If you were dead in sin, you had no hope of doing this. Walking righteously in your own strength, that's an insult to God. It's an insult to the, the Holy Spirit who empowers us to that end. But now, being dead to sin and alive to righteousness, we are called and enabled and empowered to use our members, not as instruments of sin, but as instruments of righteousness. Imagine that. Who knew that this body could be used to accomplish any good? Well, now that we have been raised with Christ, we can. If we have new hearts, then may the rest of the body do accordingly. Then he explains this. For by his wounds, you are healed. So Peter is drawing from Isaiah Chapter 53, once again, verse 5. By his wounds or by his stripes, you are healed. And this gives the image of a, of a bruise or a welt, like damage to the body that, is, that happens when a violent blow is dealt. Someone strikes you or hits you. And we, we, we're drawn to the imagery in the Gospels, especially of Christ not only being crucified, but even being scourged before he was nailed to that cross. So it takes into account that entire picture of Christ suffering in our place, but it is his death ultimately that is central to the thought of this text. Now you think about how this may relate, you know, in the, in, in the context of this passage, Peter's talk, Peter just got done talking to servants, to slaves who 
many of whom lived under constant threat of physical violence, even if they did what was right, even if they found themselves in a position where they really wanted to honor Christ, and yet they knew that they would be beaten for it. But in the death of Christ, we, we can see a man who willfully endured it so that salvation and forgiveness of sins could be ours. It is by these wounds that we are healed. Typically, wounds take a long time to heal, but we find ourselves completely healed by Christ's work. See, we're drawn to this. We're drawn to this sacrifice. Kind of ironic because, again, if you were a slave, you didn't want to be beaten. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't want stripes. You didn't want wounds. Physical violence was something, and we do this today. We don't go in. We don't, we don't march certain places in town or even in our own household looking for fights, right? Physical violence is something that we generally try to avoid at all costs. We don't like pain, and yet Christ did not seek to avoid it. It was His concern was to do the will of God. And so now, as we live unto righteousness, we also do the will of God in light of what Christ has done. And so this healing is total, and we understand that Sometimes this passage is used as a basis for to, to say that it is always God's will to heal sickness in this life. It is always His will to, to uh, snuff out disease. And I would say that, we, that this text, one, is not proof of that. Primarily, it speaks of a, of a spiritual healing because He bore our sins. That is a primary spiritual, primarily spiritual matter. On the other hand, by His stripes and by virtue of His resurrection life, we also look forward to complete physical healing that this corruptible will put on incorruption. So the healing in view is total. It is body and soul. And we have it in Christ. And we have it on the basis of, of His blood, of His substitutionary work. This healing points to our restoration. It also restores a relationship. Not just life, but a relationship with God. As Colossians 1.20 says, for him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through his blood on the cross. And the entire universe aside, when it speaks of us, yes, we are reconciled to him. God was once an enemy. We were his enemies, and now we are his friends. We have been brought near to him through the blood of the new covenant. And I would say that one of the applications we could probably put our minds on this morning has to do with living consistently with righteousness. I mean, look at Jesus. What happened to him? We find that he was crushed. He was crushed. He was beaten. He was crucified. And so should we then try to remind ourselves frequently, how bizarre is it that those who are in Christ should continue to crush themselves with sin? Should, if Christ is pierced for our transgressions, how ridiculous should it seem that the church, that the body of Christ should continue to pierce itself with many sorrows. I mean, it's said before, you can't fix stupid. But, on the other hand, you can kill stupid and give it resurrection life. That's our predicament right now. But don't go back to stupid. Walk with God. Live a righteous life that He gives us power to do. Live consistently with who you are in Him. Do not crush yourself with sins that Christ was already crushed for. Don't crush and bruise yourself any longer over things from which Christ has delivered you. That is, do not insult His suffering by constantly bludgeoning yourselves with sins that He died for. Live under righteousness. 
Looks like we have some time. All right, let's go to the next one. So that's, I didn't know if we'd finish, but here we are. Okay, so we've gotten through the first three, right? Calling in his sacrifice, conviction in his standard, confidence in his salvation, and here is the final one when enduring unjust suffering. Remember the comfort that Jesus brings in his shepherding. Remember the comfort in his shepherding. So we go, so go to verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So again, look at, look at the context. For you were. Okay. So now you have been delivered. In light, in light of the fact that Christ died in your place, the fact that you were continually straying is, is past. That's your past life. That's what you were apart from Christ in his death and resurrection life. So this is the fourth one. Have comfort in his shepherding. So let's look at verse 25 carefully. We already alluded to this, but Peter is drawing from Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Of course, the picture here is of a wayward flock, sheep who have strayed far from the Lord, doing what is right in their own eyes. And instead of our sins justly crushing us, what do they do? They fall on Jesus. Now keep in mind, very important to our understanding of the whole of this book, especially in light of being, you know, the chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, all of that that is wrapped up in the church. Peter is doing something similar to those passages. He is, he is drawing from Isaiah 53, 6, which was originally written to who? Israel, ethnic Jews. And now this promise is being fulfilled in the church, both Jew and Gentile. So keep that in mind, that God's flock we see here is growing now to encompass Jew and Gentile in the church, the true Israel. So he calls us sheep here. Now, once I get dis done describing what it is about sheep that we have to know, it might kind of disturb you a little bit. But, but the word sheep here is used very deliberately. And again, many men who have gone before me have adequately described what we need to know about sheep, so I stand on their shoulders, credit where credit's due. But let's break this down in four ways. One, sheep are defenseless. Sheep have no natural weapons, the sheep that Peter has in mind. They are not a predator of anything. You don't see, you know, the majestic sheep of Scotland on the prowl, seeking out his prey very carefully. First, he's stealthily in the bushes. And then he, you know, what? there's no lying in wait. The sheep is defenseless. They are the bottom of the food chain. That might be hard for us to grasp because, hey, let's face it, it's good to be people. We can kill food from a distance, right? It's amazing. It's amazing that a 200-pound man can kill a 1,000-pound Kodiak bear when he fires a projectile, from a, a projectile from a barrel at half a mile per second. It's amazing. So it's hard for us to grasp this. So it takes some humility to understand ourselves as sheep. But sheep are defenseless. That's one. Secondly, you're not going to like this either. Sheep are naturally dirty. Notorious for attracting dirt. They're easily soiled by their surrounding environment. They're often muddy. Sheep are dirty. Thirdly, sheep are dependent. I know we just love this idea of rugged individualism. Life on my own, living life by my own rules, right? Being a rebel without a cause. Sheep are dependent. 
They, they are not meant to spend their time in isolation. So many things can go wrong when a sheep is alone. I know that we've heard many times that God helps those who help themselves, but even sheep cannot do that. They need constantly to be looked after, to be cleaned. They need someone to follow. Sheep are not driven. They are led. They do not do well on their own. We hear that in John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Sheep need a shepherd. They are dependent creatures. And here's here's the fourth one and probably the most soul-crushing one of them all. Sheep are dumb. I know, you're like... (laughs) Calling me, and I, I know when I was in seminary, one of the things I learned about in preaching class was you do not insult your congregation, right? But how about I lump myself into this? We're just dumb, right? Sheep are dumb. Not known for their uh, cunning, their strategy, or their intelligence. They're prone to wander. They're prone to falling to danger. Prone, prone to doing all kinds of things that can bring upon themselves personal harm. And in light of the three aforementioned characteristics, sheep lack the remedy, the resources to to remedy their situation. So not being a smart animal animal by nature is a huge liability, right? So we have to think about ourselves in, in that context as sheep. So this is what we were, especially without Christ. Defenseless, dirty, dependent, dumb, You know, we've talked about the fact that man deep down knows that, at least in a general sense, he needs saving. He just doesn't want to accept God's answer to his problem. But now look at what 1 Peter says. He says that now, so he's marking a change in situation, a change in circumstance. He says, you were continually straying. Like, this this was a characteristic. We're just straying all the time, wandering all the time, going anywhere but toward God. But now, he says, you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, very important. He says, you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This word return is actually passive. You know what that means? It means something outside of you acted upon you. You didn't return by your own free will. You didn't return in your own strength. You never woke up one morning and said, aha, this sounds great, this gospel stuff. I think I will believe. No, you were, you were returned. Something acted on you. What was that? It's the power of the gospel. The gospel, gospel power acted upon you, and you were returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Life as it was meant to be. Once upon a time, man walked with God in a beautiful garden. He disobeyed God and has been in trouble ever since. But now we have been returned as God's sheep. Something has happened to us. Think about this. Will the one who laid his life down for you and bore all your sins also fail to seek you and bring you into his flock? And we say, no way. He will find you. He will bring you into his flock because he died for you. He has a claim on you. You belong to him. I mean, this this whole thing is very significant to the whole prophetic witness concerning what Christ would do. Listen to John 11, 49 through 52. Uh, Lazarus has been raised by Jesus. And now, of course, instead of the Jewish leaders meeting together and saying, hey, Jesus just raised someone from the dead. He's probably who he says he is. No, they met and conspired to kill him. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor are you taking into account that it is in your best interest that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish instead. 
Now he did not say this on his own. Translation, Caiaphas knew nothing. But as he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now, listen to verse 52, very important. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one, the church, the children of God who are scattered abroad. We read about this in Ephesians. The welcoming of Gentiles into the commonwealth of Israel. The children of God scattered abroad are Gentiles that would be welcomed into the fold on the basis of Christ's sacrificial death. That Christ was going to lay down his life for his sheep, whether Jew or Gentile, and bring them into one family under one covenant that is the new on the basis of his shed blood. And that's in the situation we find ourselves now. What have we been brought into? We've been brought back to the shepherd and guardian of our souls, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one of the most beautiful images that the Lord portrays himself as throughout Scripture. If you want one term that really holistically describes what the Lord is to us, he is our shepherd. He's our shepherd. He watches over us. He leads us. He guides us. He feeds us. He protects us. And at the end of it, he exalts us so that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and live in eternity with him, glorified and undefiled in his presence. What an amazing and sure destiny that awaits all who call Jesus their shepherd. We have in him as a sure defense. He defends us, and he makes himself known to us, and we follow him. He keeps us from belief. Think about all these things that we described as sheep, and Christ brings in the remedy for all of them. We may be defenseless, but if Christ is the guardian of our souls, if he is our defender, then we have nothing ultimately to fear. He protects us. And you don't want to mess with the good shepherd. And if you do, you will die. That's what happens. That's what happens. You mess with the sheep, you mess with the shepherd. And we can enjoy that close fellowship with him. Talk about being dirty. Well, the sheep that belong to Christ are dirty no longer. We come to him in faith, he cleanses us, he washes us, he gives us new life. What do we do in the meantime? Well, drawing from John 13, we, we come to him to, for, for, to, to, to have our feet washed, that we may continue to enjoy fellowship with him. But he has cleansed us indeed. And let us not say otherwise. We are his sheep. That's the thing. We may be sheep, but we are Christ's sheep. That is what matters. Talk about being dependent. Of course, we can gladly and humbly call ourselves dependent upon him because we know he meets our every need. We are dependent upon his cleansing power. We're depending upon the washing of water of the word. And we joyfully reap the benefits of belonging to him, knowing that his mercy follows us all the days of our life. According to Colossians 1.29, as Paul says, we strive according to his power, which, works, which mightily works within me. I mean, sheep are altogether pretty useless, right? But then again, like if we belong to Christ, we become, we become useful. You know, I'd say with all the false doctrine going around, nothing, nothing scares a wolf more than a sheep with an open Bible. You know, make that two sheep. Don't, don't isolate yourself. It's important. We're dependent on him. And what does Psalm 23 say? He restores our soul. He leads us by still waters, right? Green pastures. We have refreshment. And this is all in light of persecution. You notice the situation here hasn't changed with persecution, with affliction, and yet our souls are guarded, meaning that he is the one, this guardian is one who keeps an eye out 
keeps an eye out for his sheep. And finally, once we were a dumb sheep, and you know, we may not be that smart, that wise, you know, that we may not be that uh, insightful. And yet, what do we have that the world cannot claim? We have the mind of Christ. If you can think God's thoughts after him, if you can be in agreement with Jesus, don't worry about the rest of it. If you have the mind of Christ, you are in a good position because you can see things the way God sees them. When the rest of the unbelieving world, those who are not a part of God's flock, cannot hear his voice, they cannot follow him. They are out of touch with the mind of the shepherd. And that's one thing we can do. If we have the mind of Christ, what can we do? We can follow him. No matter how stupid we may seem, we can hear his voice and understand it. And this commitment, of course, over the long haul is bound to bring persecutions, bound to bring rejection, affliction. I mean, you know it when you preach the gospel. It's obvious to see that the unbeliever hates the way you think, hates the God you worship, hates the Savior that died in your place. He rejects it because he does not have the mind of Christ. He is a sheep, not a part of that flock. And yet, in, in, in spite of that persecution, we are faithful to proclaim the gospel and to call Christ's sheep into pasture, knowing that he will defend us, knowing that he stands with us because he is the shepherd of our souls. And even though the unbelieving world may kill this body, they cannot rob us of future glory with Christ. They cannot keep us from him. We are with him forever. So not, not talk about us. Let's talk about the shepherd in closing. A few things you need to know about how Jesus guards us. One, he guards our soul faithfully. Always on watch, never sleeps or slumbers, guards my going out and my coming in. Secondly, the shepherd guards my soul personally. He knows, us, he knows us by name. He knows that we belong to him. The very hairs on your head are numbered. You are purchased by his blood and belong to him forever. The shepherd guards your soul mightily. He makes sure that the enemy can never overcome the salvation that he has given to you. His strength is operating with us. His strength undergirds us, helps us to stand. Fourthly, the shepherd guards us mercifully. He meets our every need. Okay? He's merciful to us. He knows our needs. He knows our struggles. He knows everything about us, and yet he is merciful to us. And then, of course, fifthly, the shepherd guards my soul eternally. As John 10 says, I lay down my life for them. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And the Greek word for never there, never snatch, means never. Got to learn the Greek. This is our comfort, guys. So the question of this I have to you is this. And the challenge is what he says, return. Have you returned? For you, the unbeliever, I would ask, have you heard the voice of the shepherd? It is time to respond to it. It is time to repent. It is time to come to him empty-handed, to come to him only in faith and to put your trust in the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And for you, for you who claim Christ, maybe you have this odd pattern of straying and returning, straying and returning. Repent, come to him, abide in him, walk with him and bear fruit. Return to the fountain of living waters and for once drink deeply instead of gargling. Sometimes that is emblematic of our lives, but this is a reminder of the goodness of Christ, the shepherd who laid his life down for you. Return to him. No more hypocrisy. No more double-mindedness. No more taking this crushing burden of sin upon yourself. It is insulting to his grace. Walk with him. Walk with him and abide with him.
If you hear his voice, says the scriptures, do not harden your hearts against him. Come and find calling in his sacrifice, conviction in his standard, confidence in his salvation, and comfort in his shepherding work. He will not fail. And he did everything to demonstrate that one proof, that one important truth, the heart of the gospel, that Christ died for sinners. Don't you forget it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time in the Word. Um, Thank you that we got through this passage. Thank you that we can call to mind that in the midst of suffering, we can simply remember you. We can turn our minds to you and remember who you are. This sort of catechism for us of who Jesus is and what he's done is so clear to us that uh, he is all we have. He is our everything. He's uh, called us. He set us a great example. He's our standard. He's died in our place. A real death, a real sacrifice. And Lord, that as we come to rest in that sacrifice, we meet a shepherd, a shepherd who is strong, a shepherd who is faithful, a shepherd who knows his flock by name. It's impossible even to exhaust all the truth in that, all the comfort that we can glean from that. But it is ours. And I pray that we would know that today, that Christ has given us himself, that we can enjoy life with him. I pray, Lord, that we would, especially if we we who claim you, who claim to know you, that we would uh, quit compromising, that we would stop pretending that that we can stray, that straying is acceptable, that we would acknowledge your holy presence in our midst, that you desire to to live with your people, to give us life and to give us joy, to ultimately, Father, cause us to inherit your kingdom and to rule and reign with Christ. And yet, this is the message that is central to to that goal, to that objective. We proclaim that the king has come, but we also must proclaim that the king has died, but he's died for his people. And what a joy that is, and how, how solemn that is to grasp. May it humble us this morning that we would treat your son and his death as the most precious treasure, as the arkenstone of the faith, as the heart of the mountain that grows and covers the earth. Lord, we want to be a part of that, and we want to walk with you. So help us to delight in you, help us to delight in the shepherd, to always be refreshed by his presence and his life-giving faithfulness. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.